it was tough for Jesus' disciples because they, they, they had to face so many things that were really so radically different from, from what they were used to that it really did boggle their, their mind many, many times. I find that as a, as a teacher that it seems that my students are being boggled by the things that I'm trying to teach them. And what often happens when we're learning something new is that we, we kind of uh, begin to get to grips with it and we start to use the new idea or whatever it is, uh, but still very frequently make mistakes just like a, a, a baby learning to, to walk. And very often we think we've understood something when in fact we've only understood part of it and we still have thoughts and ideas in our minds that we, that we use by force of habit that are not consistent with the new thing that we've learned. It takes time to work out all the connections and all the implications and get a, a, a whole point of view where everything fits together. When that applies to the things that Jesus was, was trying to teach his disciples, it's actually much harder than the things that I, I try and teach my students because they're things that affect life in a much more personal way. I want to suggest that sometimes we, we, we kind of know things, we think we know things, and really that, that understanding is, has got three problems. It's superficial, right? it doesn't go deep. It's mechanical, we're using things in a mechanical way. And it's impersonal, it doesn't touch who we are as a person. But Jesus is wanting to teach his disciples not just to understand words, or even important facts, but to really know him for themselves, and that changes who they are. So it's a deep knowledge. It's a personal knowledge. It's an organic knowledge, part of the way that I live and function. I want to pray and use the words of, a, of an old song that uh, I think Debbie used to sing, but I certainly used to sing when I first uh, joined the, the student church that we were members of back in the 1970s, just, and the 1980s. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, come closer now to me. I am reaching out for you I need to see. No more just words and facts about a man who lived long ago. Jesus, it's you we really need to know. Amen. Amen. Thank John for uh, reading the, the uh, story to us, the parable, and a little follow-on from, from that. Uh, I want to say a, a couple of things about the story. I think it's, it's kind of like going to the doctors or even to the hospital for a, for a checkup. This This parable, I think... Excuse me, just kicking this flex to one side. I feel I'm going to sort of fall over it. Uh, it's like a kind of heart scan. Did you hear about the guy who had the brain scan? And the results came back negative. They couldn't find one. Well, we're going to have a heart scan from Jesus if we enter into the parable that he told his uh, hearers all those years ago. First thing I want to say about it is... This story is a silly story. Did you notice that? It's a ridiculous story. This story is literally stupid. If anybody ran a vineyard paying guys 12 hours worth of pay for one hour of work, they'd go bust quite quickly. Is that right? And I think Jesus' hearers knew that. Yeah? 
It's a, a silly story. Why is Jesus using a silly story? <coughs> well, you know, the, the, it, it's, it's a good job that the, the passage actually tells us that it's not, it's not meant to be taken literally because it, it says the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who had a vineyard. It doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is a business proposition where the owner does this. It's like a vineyard. So it's, it's not a literal story. So the fact that it's literally ridiculous isn't a problem. But if we try and work out what it means by looking at the details and kind of calculating what it means, we're going to miss the whole point of the story. So let's look for the point of the story. Can you, can you see the point of the story anywhere? Well, if it was a joke, you'd, 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 you'd wait for the end of the joke, wouldn't you? Because it, it's, it's usually the, the, the last bit that ties all the other bits together. They've been setting up the scene. And then it all comes together right at the end. And you, you, know, you feel the impact of the joke when you hear the punchline, if there is a punchline. And if you look at the end of the parable, Jesus sums it up in, I think it's verse 16. So the last will be first, and the first will be last. And if you've got your Bible in front of you, how about looking just to the left of that, the very last verse of the previous chapter. What is it that Jesus is saying there? This is chapter 19, verse 30, if, if my eyes are correct. Uh, but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. That's something to do with the story that Jesus tells in between these two verses that are almost the same. I think parables, and I may have said this before, but, but I, th I think parables are rather like jokes. Because in a joke you can say some really silly, silly, stupid things that everybody knows are not true. And even the punchline can be not true. You know, it, 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 it has never happened. And yet, somehow, it all comes together and says something that is amusing, that makes you laugh. And maybe sometimes it makes you laugh at yourself, or laugh at the way the world is. Maybe sometimes it has a truth in it that lets you face life with a bit more courage than you had before you heard the joke. You can be talking about very serious things in a way that makes it safe to have a bit of a chuckle about them and yet realise that we still need to do something serious about it. But we're not overwhelmed by the seriousness of it. And I believe we're seeing an example of the patience and kindness of Jesus. He's got something to say that actually, if you had it in a, a kind of a bold fact way, could seem quite unpleasant. But he wants to give his hearers the chance of, of, of facing some, some maybe negative truths in a really safe way, a really positive way, with a bit of a chuckle at a silly story. So may the Lord give us courage to face the things that we even hide from ourselves as we seek to listen to him. Now you might read this story and, and think that what it's telling us is that some people actually deserve to get to heaven, whereas others of us don't, but it's okay because God will accept us anyway. And God is a merciful God. 
But I honestly don't think that's the point of this story. It's, it's not about uh, saying that it's possible to work towards uh, God's gift of salvation, either wholly or partly. That's not the point of the story. Although it might seem to fit our own ideas about ourselves, maybe. We might feel that it seems right that I should have to work hard to gain a place in heaven. And that if I work hard enough, God will accept me because I'm good enough. And I'll have proved to God that and maybe that's how you or I think now or might have thought in the past. Jesus actually, I want to suggest to you, completely cuts across that. Because the bunch of people in the story who you might think are the good guys, the people who've done a 12-hour shift, they've done a proper day's work for the landowner, they're the people who at the end of the story we find have a heart problem that they didn't know existed. An undiagnosed heart problem. So at the end of the story, we, we, we get that, that punchline. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And Jesus is saying, in the kingdom of God, things are the opposite way round to what you normally expect sometimes. And there are things that you will have been taught and conditioned to believe are really important, they're not important. And there are things that you've been taught to avoid at all costs, sometimes they are worth actually doing. Now, when I was a kid, uh, one of the programmes that I used to watch on TV in the days when I still watched TV was Stingray. Stingray, Stingray. Did anybody else watch Stingray with Captain Troy Tempest? Yo! <laughs> yeah, Michael does. Yeah. Uh, now, if, if I've got the programme right, and it's, uh, the, it used to start with this sort of, you know, all these scenes of the underwater boat and so on and uh, this, this, the base station that it came from. And then they sort of, Ameri it was actually a British program, but they hired sort of various American people to do voices. And the, a voice came out at the start and said, anything can happen in the next half hour. Now, it could have been an English person. Anything can happen in the next half hour. But it wouldn't have been quite as exciting as a sort of mildly, slightly hysterical American person with a deep voice. And Jesus, I think, is, is trying to tell his disciples that in the kingdom of God, Anything can happen. Just be prepared for things that are surprising. And it is going to be exciting, and it is going to be difficult sometimes, but things that you never thought would appear in your life. And things that appeared in my little imagination as a six- and seven-year-old boy. Or a 20-odd-year-old guy, as Michael's, and I'd, I'd, I'd watch it now. And... The, the difficulty that I've got now is that I've got to try to explain the joke, if you like, the, the punch of the parable. And if you've ever tried explaining a joke to someone, it kind of stops it being funny, doesn't it, really? In fact, I sometimes think the kind of person that you have to explain a joke to, it's not worth explaining it to them, really. Yeah. But please pray for the preachers. Not just for me, but for all the people who come to, to preach. Because their, their role, if you like, is to explain a joke while still making it funny. To make the, the message of the Bible understandable and still powerful. And that is actually quite hard. 
because the harder you try to explain it, the more it just sounds trivial. You know, God, infinity, eternity, oh, all right, what's for lunch? It's, it's difficult to convey things in a way that leaves the power intact. And yet that's what God wants us to do if we can. And that's partly in the ear of the hearer as well as in the speaker. Because Jesus knew the importance of listening. That's why he sometimes said to the crowd, whoever has an ear to hear, listen, really hear. God is trying to speak to anybody who's listening. Okay, the point of the story. Now this, this first group of people, who, the, the people who you might think really deserve a full day's pay, so since the guys who only work for, for an hour got a full day's pay, you might think it's only fair to give them a little bit more than a day's pay, because they've done 12 times as much work, for goodness sake. Isn't that fair? Uh, these guys have an undiagnosed heart condition, and it has three symptoms that Jesus reveals in the story. Here's the first one. Verses 10, 12. Well, he gives them their, their denarius in verse 10. They're expecting a little bit more. And they begin to grumble and they say, These men who were hired last worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us. They saw the other guys working for an hour and they thought, We will get more. They put it a different way. They looked at other people and they thought about themselves. That's what these guys did. Do, do they deserve God's gift of salvation? Apparently not, from that point of view. That's not what the story is saying. It's saying that people who've done work that was given to them still have a heart problem. And one of its symptoms is when they look at other people, they're thinking about themselves. What should I have? What can I get? What's in it for me? It's not right that they should have that and I, I don't have that. They're looking at other people and thinking, calculating for themselves. Second thing is, we see that they have a different attitude to the landowner. In, in particular, to those very important ideas, right and wrong. They have a different sense of what right and wrong means. So the landowner... Uh, says to one, one bunch of guys in uh, verse 4, you know, I thought, should I, should I get my specs on or not? But then I can't, I can't see you if I wear my specs. And now I, I can't see the, the... Anyway. There's some guy on a bike, he's riding up and down, isn't he? He, he, he told them, uh, you go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So people who started later, I'll pay you what is right. And then to the, uh, the other guys, the guys who, who are beginning to uh, grumble, he says, well, I've not been unfair to you. It's actually the, the negative of the word that's translated right earlier on. I, I, I haven't done wrong to you guys. And yet they felt that he had. <coughs> In fact, a little bit later, he... Uh, again, can I find this, this word here? In verse 15... Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? That's how the NIV translates it. It can also be translated, is it not lawful for me to do what I want with my own money? 
And there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole lesson there, really, because Jesus had a different attitude to the Jewish law, the God-given law, that some of the other people had. And the guys in this story have a sense of right and wrong that works to their advantage. But the landowner has a sense of right and wrong that works to other people's advantage because he loves to be generous. And his sense of fair play has also guided him to do more than what is fair, to be generous. And that is the character of God. So symptom one, look at others, think about self. Symptom two, have an idea of right and wrong that is kind of to my advantage. My brother had 15 chips and I only had 14 chips. Bang goes the table, you know, isn't that outrageous? It's as childish as that, really. And the third symptom is really obvious because it's stated explicitly. Some people have a heart murmur. These guys have got a heart grumble. Grumbling. That's the third symptom. And we can look at these guys and feel disappointed in them and think that, you know, they, they just don't, don't get it. They don't understand it. It's not a very funny story now, is it, really? But uh, that's, the, that's the problem with trying to explain it. And yet, at the end of the story, having set up the scene, all the you know, later workers have gone from the story. We don't need to worry about them. We don't need to ask, well, did they have the same heart problem? It doesn't matter. They never existed, actually. It's a, it's a made-up story. The point is it's set up a dramatic scene. And here's the scene... The grumbling guys who've, who have done a full day's work have made their grumble to the landowner and he's going to get the last word. And what does he say? The problem with you people is you're so selfish. You look at other people and think about yourself. You're rubbish. You think, I ought to pay you and you behave like this. You're so unkind. You know, you're so immature, so childish. You're measuring things that actually don't matter. You've missed the point of life. And now you come to me, the guy who's fairly paid you, and you're grumbling. Do you notice that he doesn't say that? He doesn't talk like that at all. And we are meant to be surprised, I think, by how the landowner speaks to these guys. Let's save it for last. We'll save the best to last, shall we? which of course says that what's, what's coming next is less than the best, but of course I, I don't mean that really. I want to just t take a couple of minutes to look at the background to the story. Well, John read to us the next few verses, and you'll see there Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. And again, he's explaining very clearly to his disciples what's going to happen when he gets there. The very next chapter, chapter 21, is Jesus entering Jerusalem on the donkey, the beginning of Holy Week, Passion Week, and the Easter story. So we're, we're quite close to the Easter events here, and Jesus is getting his disciples ready for what's going to happen to him and to them uh, through the events of Easter. But immediately before this, in chapter 19, there's been an, an incident with a, uh, a young bloke who we learn a couple of things about in in Matthew 19, he's a rich, young bloke. And he seems to be a really nice chap. And people think, think well of him. The disciples certainly think very, very well of him indeed. He's the kind of guy that I'm sure every parent 
with, a, with an unmarried daughter will be thinking, now this is the kind of guy we'd like in our family. He's such a nice young man. How he expresses himself, he's so polite and thoughtful, and he's rich. Ooh, nice. Nice guy. Uh, and, and Jesus, as you may know the story, say, says to him, well, there's only one thing missing in your life. If you really want to be complete, if you really want to be full, fully into the kingdom of God, what you need to do is to get rid of all these riches. You know, leave, leave home, leave your education, leave the town where you're becoming a popular guy, and follow me. And the disciples are absolutely mind-boggled by that. And it's, it's at this point in chapter 19 that Jesus does the, uh, the stingray moment in verse 26. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God anything can happen. Because it really was a stingray moment. I mean, it's, it, verse, verse 25 tells us that the disciples were greatly astonished. Now, when Jesus healed people and, like, blind people could see and deaf people could hear and demon-possessed, like, wild, out-of-control people were, like, totally normal and balanced, people were astonished. But here the disciples are greatly astonished. This is just absolutely mad. Jesus, are you really saying that this rich, successful, popular, nice young man needs to become a poor nobody in order to follow you? What are you saying? We can't understand that. Surely this is where we're all heading for in life. We want to be, you know, famous and powerful and rich. Not, not purely selfishly. We will help people with our riches, of course. I would with, with mine, if I hadn't. Uh, and Jesus says to them to you it seems so difficult he, he says it's really hard for a, a rich person to enter the kingdom of God how can that be they say surely not not a guy like this young guy okay if it was a crook who got his riches by thieving it but an honest rich person surely they've been blessed by God we should pray for this we pray for Prosperity. We don't pray for people's businesses to fail, do we? We don't pray for people to be ill. We pray for them to be well and successful and happy and to have you know, friends and to have a good influence. And we all believe that these are the things that matter and they do matter to a point, but they're not the things that matter most to Jesus or to those who really believe in him. And the disciples were in a weird position of beginning to believe in Jesus and not having yet worked out all the consequences that that would have for them as people. And so they thought and said things that were actually contradictory, just like my students do. And probably I do, but I'm not aware of it. And Jesus is going to make them aware of it by bringing them face to face with it. And after teaching them this, this, this idea, this mind-boggling idea, that uh, the rich young person would have been better off as a poor nobody following Jesus. Peter then asks Jesus a question. Now, what question do you think you would ask in that situation? How can I be a better follower of you, Lord? What's going to happen to you when we get to Jerusalem? Now, Peter doesn't ask that. He says... What are we going to get out of it? We've given up loads of things already. Look, we're already poor nobodies. What are you going to give us? Good old Peter. 
He's the guy who says what we're all thinking and don't say. Yeah? And Jesus says to them at the end of chapter 19, you know, God is nobody's debtor. God, God is a generous giving God. He's, he's not asking you to leave things and then going to leave, give, give, you, give you nothing. He's going to give you loads of things. What God has for you is more than anything that you could ever give up for him. Jesus says that to them. But he doesn't leave the story there. He doesn't leave his comment there. Because if he just said that, that wouldn't challenge the heart problem that Peter and the disciples had. You see, they were wrestling with this riches, power, fame, popularity thing because that's what they believed was most important and they had to achieve that in this life otherwise they would have missed God's best. God's best was what, what kind of suits me in that frame of mind, so it seemed to them. And Jesus had to teach them that that was not true. That in God's anything-can-happen kingdom, things are sometimes back to front. And what seems to be the leading position is actually last place. And the person who deliberately puts himself or herself into last place for the sake of the gospel is actually in first place as far as God is concerned. And so Jesus tells them this story. He's talking to his disciples in particular. It may have been the same moments. It may have been the next day. I, I don't really know about that. Uh, people debate how the Gospels are structured. But however it, it happened, it was part of the ongoing conversation between Jesus and his disciples. He's talking to his closest followers when he says, the grumblers have a heart problem. And if we ever feel that, then we're in the same boat. And we need the same kind of heart surgery that Peter and his friends experienced in the coming days through the passion story and the aftermath with the Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is able to speak to us in the same way that he spoke to them. So what is the story saying to us? Now Simon's title uh, for this uh, address is Restoring the, the Passion for Faith. The word faith isn't mentioned in either chapter 19 or 20. But the idea of faith is there all the time. Faith in its fullest sense. Faith involves believing certain things. Because if you don't believe anything, then how can you believe in anything? I need to know some facts about Deborah in order to know who she is and to start a relationship with her. And then I can start to trust her as a person. So there is, there is a place for facts. But the next and more important thing is that personal level of trust. Faith is a personal trust. But you know, faith in the biblical sense is even more than that. It's an odd fact that the Greek word for faith, and I believe it's the same for the Hebrew word, I could be wrong there, for faith and faithful is the same word. Our English word doesn't quite work like that, but we do have something similar. Have you heard the phrase, acting in good faith? That, that person is, is in good faith. That means you can trust them because they'll be faithful, they are trustworthy. The biblical word faith actually carries all those meanings. It's a personal trust, but as we trust in that, that other person, 
we, we engage in a, a trustworthy commitment to them. We are acting in good faith towards that person. And as the disciples hear Jesus call, follow me, and they go to follow him, why are they doing that? Is it because they really trust him and are able to make a complete commitment to him in good faith? Or is it because they want to use him as a shortcut to the things that they want out of life? Or even as a long cut to the things that they want out of life? A kind of 50-50 compromise. They've got a mixture of motives and attitudes and Jesus exposes them. Because what he wants from them is a complete commitment in good faith. Now, I know that my life was... uh, very privileged to experience the the love and commitment of my mother and many of us can say the same that the the input of of mum into life has been a very positive thing not for everyone i know that because it's it's a fallen world and and, you know things can be difficult Uh, for us my my dad died when i was two and a half so it was difficult for for my mum and she came through a number of uh, problems there, really, to, to bring up the, the, the two boys, me and my younger brother. And I know that a good mother always acts in good faith. And I know that for a good mother, the welfare of her children is an immovable object. It's, it, it's something that is always there, whether she feels like it or doesn't feel like it, whether she feels energetic or whether she feels listless, whether she feels depressed or whether she feels ecstatic, the welfare of her children is a permanent, immovable feature of life, and you work with it. And she's there for them. She even carries out those daily little chores and duties that just keep them clothed and fed and warm, because it's something that never changes. And God is faithful just like that. And God wants us as we put our trust in him, to partake of that faithful character, to be people who have a certain something in the middle of our lives that is unmovable and unchangeable about who we are and the direction that we take. And whether we feel energetic or listless, whether we're feeling happy or not so happy, there's one thing that never leaves our radar screen. And I guess even in the times when pressure makes things leave our radar screen, it's still there underneath. The thing that we really believe in, the person that we really trust, the one who, when all the other winds and storms have blown themselves out, is the rock that we know we will be standing on. You are my rock. Christ, who is at the centre. Let's listen to the words that the landowner speaks to the grumbling workers. And as we listen to them, let's bring all our grumbles and all our fears and all our disappointments. Maybe some of them are not justified. Maybe some of them are. It doesn't matter. Bring them anyway. Maybe we need a change of attitude. Maybe... We need to recognise a different emphasis or a different sense of priorities. Listen to how the landowner speaks. And notice how the story finishes. He answered one of them. 
Now, isn't that interesting? Everybody else has gone, the grumblers remain, and the landowner goes and he just speaks to one of them, yeah? Who's that one? Well, if I'm reading, it's me, isn't it? And if you're hearing it or thinking about it, I believe it's you. And Jesus wants us to feel that the landowner, God himself, through Jesus, even in our grumbling, disappointed, frustrated, even our most selfish moments, is saying, tell me anyway, and here's what I want to say to you. Now I've got to find it again, haven't I? With my failing eyesight. Friend. Isn't that great? He starts a friend. I'm not being unfair to you. You agreed to work for a day's pay. I, I will always keep my promise to you. Take your pay, go home. What I've got for you, take it. Keep it with you. If I want to give to the man who was hired last the same thing as you, don't be sad because I'm generous. I, I have the right to do what I want with my own money. Don't envy other people. Just look at me and receive what I have for you. And then here's, here's the, little, the little slight sting. Are you envious because I'm generous? He doesn't say, oh, what a horrible, selfish person. He says, ask yourself, here's a question. Are you envious because I'm generous? And then Jesus leaves it there and works with them over the next few days and weeks and for the rest of their lives as he does with you and me. And whatever we're feeling, the fact remains that in the kingdom of God, anything can happen. Amen.